Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Okay, we are back for part two of our look into Mosiah 18. We left off our walkthrough of part one with verse 16, and I felt that this chapter was so important that we needed to slow down and break it into two parts. Alma has begun to gather people together to a place called the Waters of Mormon. They are a different type of community. They aren't a family. They aren't a kingdom or a nation. They're something new entirely. The thing that unites them is that they all believe that the only answer to the human condition is for God himself to come down, take upon himself that same condition, and then sacrifice himself for all of humanity, only to be raised from the dead. That is their organizing principle, and they believe it so thoroughly that they bind themselves by covenant to live by the same self-sacrificing love as the Messiah. They make this covenant by being baptized, symbolically burying themselves in the same way that Christ will be buried, and then being brought up again to live by the grace of God and His Spirit, mourning with those who mourn, comforting those who stand in need of comfort, and standing as a witness of God in every how, in every when, and in every where. One way to think about being a witness is to be the one who is responsible for providing evidence for the power of the suffering Lamb. And a community that can do that is a powerful thing. All right, that brings us up to speed. Let's move on to verses 17 through 30. Right away we learn that this new type of community is called a church, and more specifically, the church of God, or the church of Christ from that time forward. A church is a familiar thing to us, but not to the Nephites. And the introduction of this new community will cause everything else in society to shift. Mormon tells us that Alma begins to organize this people by ordaining priests. Up until now, the king was always the one responsible for ordaining priests, and now Alma is doing it, having authority, Mormon tells us. He chooses one priest for every group of 50, meaning that at least after the initial baptism of 204 souls, he's ordained four priests. The responsibility of the priests were to teach the people concerning the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and that they should teach nothing save it were the things which he had taught, and which had been spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets. Yea, even he commanded them that they should preach nothing save it were repentance and faith on the Lord, who should redeem his people. And he commanded them that there should be no contention one with another, but that they should look forward with one eye, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and in love one towards another, And thus he commanded them to preach, and thus they became the children of God. Put simply, Alma has seen priestly corruption, wickedness, and intrigue firsthand, and he's having none of it going forward. Those given the power to lead are not to make it about themselves the way that Noah's priests did, and their unity will set the tone for the rest of the people. Think about it. This is like the size of a small ward, and Alma wants to get the culture right from the beginning. They're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. They're going to live in gratitude toward the Lord. And the priests are not going to live off the labor of the people. And there was one day in every week that was set apart that they should gather themselves together to teach the people 
and to worship the Lord their God, and also, as often as it was in their power, to assemble themselves together. It's not entirely clear, but if I were to guess, it sounds like the people are still living in their homes, laboring on their farms, and living among the broader Zenophite people, and then are agreeing when to gather together at Mormon. The priests don't receive compensation, but for their labor they were to receive the grace of God, that they might wax strong in the Spirit, having the knowledge of God, that they might teach with power and authority from God. The privilege of the priests, then, is not gold, it's that they get to have the experience of receiving grace so that the people could learn and grow. It isn't enough to just talk about religion. Alma commanded that the people of the church should impart of their substance everyone according to that which he had. Apparently all of this was commanded by God to Alma, and Alma gave the command to his people. And this isn't the only time that God links walking uprightly before him to imparting one another both temporally and spiritually according to their needs and their wants. Alma's people share resources. The church in Jerusalem has all things in common. The people following Christ's visit to the Lehites live in this kind of harmony. And today the Lord commands us to live the law of consecration. The law of consecration can look like a lot of different things. It covers time, talents, and efforts. It can look like tithing, fast offerings, serving in callings, making sacrifices, offering financial support when others are in need, teaching, building, leading, following, and on and on. There have been a few periods throughout the history of the church where the saints have tried to formalize the law of consecration into a more communal financial system with varying degrees of success, but people too often mistake those attempts for the law itself. One thing you might hear, and this is something that I've frustratingly heard a number of times, is that the law of consecration has somehow been put on hold until Jesus comes again. That is false. President Hinckley made a point of saying that both the law of sacrifice and the law of consecration are still commandments that we need to be keeping. Apart from the fact that the idea that the law of consecration has been put on hold doesn't have any backing in scripture or the words of living prophets, why would you even want that to be true? To consecrate means to dedicate to God or to make sacred. Communities like the church that Alma establishes in this chapter are built on the idea that because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and especially his resurrection, there's no part of daily life that escapes the scope of the sacred. There's nothing that can be withheld from building up the kingdom of God when you covenant to stand as a witness of God every when, everywhere, and every how. And that's not a dogmatic stance. That's just the type of communal reformation that Abinadi believed would flow from centering your community on the God who suffers for all of his children. If you study the history of Christianity, one thing that has had a dramatic influence is something called Neoplatonism, which is basically the repurposing of Plato's philosophy and ideas to explain Christian theology. If you remember, Plato talked about ideal forms. There's this famous painting of Plato and his student Aristotle, and Plato is pointing up and Aristotle is pointing down, and it's to show the differences in their philosophies. For Plato, the really real exists in the ideal world and not in the material world. Aristotle, on the other hand, is focused on the material world. So that's the difference, up and down. Plato has this famous allegory of the cave, which should really be required reading for everyone. To sum it up very quickly, a man has been raised in a cave his whole life, only seeing shadows dancing on the wall. The man is then allowed to go out into the material world. He sees the sun, he sees color, he feels and smells, 
and is just overwhelmed by how real everything is. And he goes back into the cave and tries to describe it to his friends. His friends are so offended by what they consider to be the madness of this man that they end up killing him. This material world is the cave, and the ideal world is what is outside. And those who know that it's the really real are completely rejected by those who can't see past the material. That's Plato's philosophy. It's a compelling allegory, and there's certainly a lot of truth to it. But there's a problem. Jesus wasn't a Neoplatonist. His vision of the kingdom of God was not there and then. It was here and now. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Reach out and grab it. Joseph Smith had a similar understanding of the kingdom of God. In fact, one of the ways that he understood sealing was that by sealing communities together, family to family, on this earth, we are constructing heaven here and not waiting for heaven to happen to us there. Heaven, after all, can't happen to us. Heaven is a web of divine relationships, eternal families linking eternal families into the family of Christ. The Anglican scholar N.T. Wright has been trying to teach this idea to the broader world of Christianity for years. He's arguably the world's leading expert on Paul, and he sees that one of the biggest obstacles to understanding Paul is that people read him as if he's a Neoplatonist and not a first century Jew. When Paul uses the word salvation, for example, he's not talking about an escape from this world. He's talking about a transformation of it. One of N.T. Wright's classic lines is, Heaven is not the goal. I've shared this line in Gospel Doctrine before and gotten significant pushback. But what he's really trying to say is that we have come to imagine heaven as some type of neoplatonic ideal state that can't exist in the material world. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to die and escape the material world. If that were the case, the resurrection would be a terrible way of accomplishing it. But that's how we've come to imagine it, even sometimes in the church. The goal is new creation. We've talked about the creation account in the book of Genesis being the story of God building a temple and placing his image, us, in that temple. That may have once been an appropriate description of the world, but it's hard to say that that's the case anymore. To put it lightly, humanity has fallen short of being God's image in the world. But with Jesus' resurrection, the new creation has begun again. With our baptisms and receiving the Spirit, we get to join in the new creation and in an early resurrection, as Adam Miller calls it. This understanding shifts our gaze. The gospel isn't about escaping this world to get to heaven. It's about dying to this world so that we can construct heaven here and now through Christ's resurrecting power. And Latter-day Saint prophets again and again have taught that the celestial kingdom will be experienced on this earth. That's the new creation. Every time someone is baptized, it becomes more celestial. And every time we dedicate a new meeting house or a temple, the earth becomes more celestial. And most of all, whenever we take our time, our talents, and our efforts, things that people have come to believe belong to us as individuals, and we consecrate them to the servants of our fellow being as the service to our God, the earth becomes more celestial. The law of consecration is the way that we participate in creating the world anew. That's what gathering Israel, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, and building Zion are all describing. Why in the world would you want that to be put on hold until the second coming? We talked last episode about what Alma's people do. Well, this is what they do. 
And this is what the Church of Christ should always do. The work of the Messiah is atonement, bringing a unity of relationships, and resurrection, building the new creation. And by taking upon us His name and His Spirit, we're covenanting to make His work our work. Alma was not a Neoplatonist. In chapter 18, Mormon lets us know that this is personal. Remember, he's named Mormon after the place where all of this is going down, and he lives in a time where he doesn't have the type of community that Alma and his people have. The Nephites in Mormon's day are terrible and on the brink of utter destruction. Knowing all of that, listen to how Mormon writes about the place where this little community gathers. And now it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. How beautiful are they to the eyes of those who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. Yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing his praise forever. Could you feel the longing that Mormon has for that time and that place? He even uses Isaiah's language from Isaiah 52, 7-10. Remember those are the verses that the priests quote about the establishment of the prophesied kingdom and the verses that Abinadi uses to describe the prophets, those who listen to the prophets and the Messiah himself. How beautiful are they? How blessed are they? They shall sing his praise forever. I have to believe that if Mormon were the one doing this podcast, he would reach through this microphone and grab us all by the shoulders and shake us until we woke up. In his day, he longed for the type of community that Alma and his people had. And with the resources the church has today, I have to believe that he would insist that we could pull this off. We could actually gather Israel and build Zion in a way that all of the earth could see the salvation of God. We could do it. And I think we are doing it, but I expect we could be more urgent about it. President Nelson certainly feels urgent about it. And he's made clear that gathering Israel is the single most important thing that the rising generation could be doing with their lives. Does that just apply to the rising generation? I don't think so. But maybe he's giving the message to them because they are the ones most likely to listen. We could do this. In verses 31 through 35, we learn that the king eventually discovers what's been happening. Maybe they weren't sneaky enough, or maybe people were just being too kind to each other and that caused them to stick out. Either way, he sends spies to figure out what's going on with this movement among his people and accuses Alma of stirring up the people to rebellion against him. Little King Noah thinks everything needs to be about him. Well, he sends his armies out to destroy the church, but Mormon tells us that the people of the Lord were apprised of the coming of the king's army. Therefore, they took their tents and their families and departed into the wilderness. And they were in number of 450 souls. We'll pick up their story again in Mosiah 23. But until then, we'll say goodbye to this little church that figured out how to live in the new creation while still on this earth. How beautiful upon the mountains were their feet. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Ison. Mm-hmm.